0: As a young child, um, I was a bit of a genius and incredibly gifted at playing video games. At least so I thought. Um, We didn't have any when I was growing up and younger. Um, And so when we were visiting an older cousin and I kind of harassed him into letting me play, you know, his video game system, which I can't even remember what it was at the time. And so he handed me a controller and turned it on and right away I was just doing amazing. Okay, I didn't even know what buttons I was pushing, but I was killing everything and not dying and jumping through and beating all these levels and just having a really great time for a while until suddenly I kind of started to hit me and I was getting a little confused. And I looked over and noticed, you know, I'm pushing all these buttons on my controller, but my cousin also, he has a controller and he's playing. And wait, look, and I look kind of down at mine and I suddenly I notice well, mine isn't actually plugged in, you know. <laughs> I don't really know if I'm in control here. I don't think that I'm really the one doing all of this. I think I'm just pushing buttons, and he's really the one in control playing. That led to some distress and, you know, the the greatness of my own abilities. But Nebuchadnezzar in in Daniel 2 this morning has a similar moment of distress. And where he starts to realize that maybe he's not in control of the world as he thought that he was. And in this chapter, we'll see he has a dream that terrifies him, and it shakes him, not over something so silly as video games, but over something much more serious to him. And so we're going to look this morning and try and understand, what is this dream? You know, why was it so scary for Nebuchadnezzar? What's really going on here? And and what do we have to learn all these years later from Nebuchadnezzar's terrifying dream? So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2. And it's a longer chapter, Um, it's about 49 verses, um, I believe. Um, So if you are able, um, stand with me as we read it, Um, but if you are not, because it's longer, feel free um, to stay seated as we read from God's Word. Um, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell the servants your dreams, and we will show you the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you don't make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But... If you show me the dream and its interpretation, you will receive for me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we'll show you the interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty you are trying to gain time, because you see the word for me is firm, and if you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is too difficult, and no one can show it to the kings except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. And Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, to Mishael, and to Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mercy, mystery, that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes seasons and times. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you had made known to us the king's matter. And therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said to them, "Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation." Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, "I have found among the exiles of Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation." And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, "Are you about to make known or are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation?" And Daniel answered to the king and said, No wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers, can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, Yet he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, and this image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, and its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron, and part of some clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of the iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power and the might and the glory, and to whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule all over them. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. Yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like that iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw, the feet and the toes, partially of the potter's clay and partially of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. But as for the toes of the feet, they were partially iron and partially clay, so the kingdom shall be partially strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as the iron does not mix with clay. And in those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people, and it shall break into pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And just as you saw the stone that was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded an offering and incense be brought to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery." And the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, who made ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fall. And Lord, that you would be in this place, that you would reveal the mysteries of your word. You would help us to understand this dream, its interpretation, and this story, and what it has for all of us in our lives. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So our first blank, if you're taking notes um, in your bulletins, is that God controls all wisdom. God controls all wisdom. Really, this is partially the theme of the book of Daniel, right? Is that God controls everything. God is sovereign over all things, everywhere, throughout all times. And one of the many things that God controls is wisdom and mysteries and those that are unknown. So in the story, again, we have King Nebuchadnezzar, he has a problem, he's having nightmares. And it seems as if he's kind of having the same nightmare, because it begins in saying, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams in verse 1, and his spirit is troubled and his sleep is leaving him. And at this point in time, dreams were seen to be important, especially if the king is having them. That's why he has all of these wise men, these enchanters, these people who can interpret his dreams. It's partially why Daniel and his friends went to this school for the last three years in chapter 1, was to learn how to figure these things out so they could help the king, so they could deal with his anxiety. But Maybe you've had a dream like that, right? A recurring dream or a nightmare that just really has bothered you and you couldn't quite figure out. We've all been there to some effect, but this appears to be even more of a special case. Nebuchadnezzar seems to know that there's something different about this dream because his spirit is troubled and he's losing sleep. He can't sleep anymore because all his thoughts are consumed with his dream and he's trying to figure it out. And so all his people, verse 2, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, summon they all come to the king and they would go through this song and dance. And and say, oh king, all right, tell us your dream and then we'll interpret it for you which is leading us to believe this is how it always happens. He has a dream and he tells them what it is and then they interpret it and say, well, here's what that part means. And oh, well, here's the scary thing, what that actually is. And here's here's all of that. But the king says something different today. Tells them in five, you know, the word to me is firm. I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. You tell me what the dream, what dream I had that I'm really bothered by. And then you tell me what it means. And if you don't, you're all dead. Okay, so that's, Kind of scary. That's why they don't like that. And they kind of okay, king, like, no, 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 no. Why don't you, come, come on, just tell us what this is. But Nebuchadnezzar's done playing games. This kind of leads me to believe a little bit that Nebuchadnezzar kind of knows that these guys don't really know what they're talking about. I'm sure as any king is, they're surrounded by lots of yes men and people who always tell you what to hear, what you want to hear. So at some point he knows, you know, I'm not really sure these guys can tell me what this means. I want real wisdom. I want to really know what this is. I don't just want somebody's guess or somebody's manipulation. I want to figure out what this is. And I think deep down he knows that his wise men aren't that wise. He doesn't want them to pretend to understand it. He wants to know if they really do or not. And the only way he can think of is someone's got to tell him what the dream is, which is why he sets the stakes so high. And understandably, the wise men don't like this. And they protest and try, try a second time and say, okay, king, knock it off. Just tell us what the dream is. And eight, king says, no, I know with certainty. You're just trying to gain time. You don't really know what this is. You don't have any special power. And since you don't, you know, if you don't, all you've done is you've agreed to speak lying and corrupting words before me. He sees right through them, says, I'm not bluffing. Tell me what my dream is or you're all dead. And, and they protest even harder And ten, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. No great and powerful king has asked such a thing. They're trying to say, this is a ridiculous thing you're asking us to do. No one can do this. 11, the thing the king asks is too difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They say they don't have that kind of wisdom and no one can. This is almost kind of a bit of a confession from them, I think. Acknowledging they don't really have control over dreams or all of the wisdom in the world. They don't have secret knowledge. They're really just pretending at it. They're guessing. They took some dream interpretation classes, and so they can take their best shot at it when you give them what it is. They've acted like they knew the secrets of the world, but now their bluff is called, and they say, hey, look, no one can have this wisdom. Because if we can't have it, no one could have it. And they get partial this right. They partially acknowledge the theological truth that, you know, God is the only one who controls wisdom, but they get it wrong. Because they say, well, the gods do it. So they, they rightly understand only the divinity can get this, but they've got the wrong gods. Because their gods don't dwell with flesh. They don't recognize that our God does. Our God cares about human beings wrapped up in flesh. And Jesus, indeed himself, wrapped himself up with flesh and came down on earth to dwell among us. Their gods might not care and might not control these things, but our God does. And so we turn from this to Daniel, from the other wise men. This statement comes to Daniel, verse 13, the decree went out and the wise men are about to be killed because none of them have the power of God because God controls it. And so the guys come into Daniel. They sought out Daniel and his companions to kill him. That's kind of a not fun knock on your door to get, I would imagine, which is why Daniel says, "Uh, what gives, dude? Why, Why is this such a big... Why are all the wise men being wiped out? What happened? What did somebody do? And fourteen, and the king tells him, or the, the captain of the king guard, Ariok, tells him in 14, Daniel replies with prudence and discretion and says, Hey, what, you know, why don't you set up a time with me with the king? I'll show what the interpretation is. Which one, I mean, that shows some faith. That's some incredible faith of Daniel to be like, Oh, we're being killed because the king has a dream and no one can show him what it is? Well, okay, why don't you give me an appointment? I'll go and I'll do it. But his faith isn't in his own abilities. It's really in his God. But it's a faith of expectation of hopefully God will show up and deliver this. And so then, 17, Daniel goes to his friends and tells them the story. Tells them what's going on. And 18, tells them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. He says, guys, we've got to get on our faces and pray. Because I don't know what this is. The only way I'm going to figure this out is if our God comes and reveals this mystery. To us, they got to seek his face and ask for mercy again. It's mercy. It's God doesn't owe them to, doesn't owe this, but he does it. And that night, God answers. He visits Daniel nineteen. The mystery was revealed to Daniel, in a vision of the night. It seems as if Daniel gets the same vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. And so he has it. After he gets it, how does Daniel respond? Well, how would you respond? I'd run to the king right away, right? Because I'm, I'm on death row. My, my death is imminent. My execution is imminent. My friend's execution is imminent. I've got the answer. The only thing that's going to save us, I'm sprinting to the throne room or to find out whoever it is to tell me, get, get me in there. I can tell him what it is. I'm shouting on the mountaintop. But, you know, that's not what Daniel does. Daniel takes a moment to stop and bless the God of heaven. He takes time to pray again and to thank God. God. And he gives a beautiful prayer. It's a prayer that's poetic and it's poetry. It's why it's laid out slightly differently. And the key to his prayer, it begins in acknowledging blessed be the name of the God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. And 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. 22, he reveals the deep and hidden things. In 23, to say, you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom. And you've now made known to me what we asked of you. In th- several different ways throughout this prayer, he acknowledges that this wisdom he has is only from God. That God, you are the one who controls all wisdom. It's not just me. It's not just my ability. It's not my great faith and awesomeness. It is just you that gave this. Mysteries belong to God alone. And Daniel goes before the king, and the king, you know, asks him a question. And the king says, well, hey, are are you the one who can reveal this to me? And the focus is on Daniel's ability, on Daniel's wisdom. All right, and Daniel responds, no. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers. No one can show the king this mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar and he'll say no I don't have the ability but God does and God told me I'm just the middleman, passing it on to you Daniel says, no, I don't have this ability. It's, it's really just God. He doesn't seek any credit for himself, which is contrasted with Arioch, the king's guard. You wonder why does that guy even get a name? It's because he's kind of set up as a literary foil to Daniel. You see in 25 when Arioch writes in Daniel before the king in haste and says to him, hey, I found him. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, you really, you're struggling with this dream and can't figure it out. Well, don't worry. I have taken care of it. I found somebody that could do this. Right? This is him trying to take credit for something that he didn't have anything to do with. He didn't find Daniel. Daniel found him. Right? And Daniel harassed him and said, hey, set me up a time to meet. I'll figure this out. I've got it. But now that we're before the king and there are rewards being given out, Eric says, no, 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 I, I want some of that, please. I would like some credit. And so you have this guy wanting all of the credit and Daniel shoving it aside saying, no, I don't have any ability. This is just God. This is... More significant, too, because we found it back in chapter 1. God gave Daniel the ability to interpret dreams. This is a spiritual gift. This is his wheelhouse. This is something that God has uniquely given and gifted to him. It's not just a one-time thing. This is part of his calling and who he is. And yet he says, no, I don't have the ability to do that. This is just God. He acknowledges ultimately God's the one in control of all of this. Not him. Not him. He doesn't treat it really like it's his, his own ability, it's just God's grace. He acknowledges, like we must, that God ultimately controls all wisdom and all mysteries. And we have to do the same. All of our talents and wisdom, it comes from God. It doesn't come because we read a bunch of books or have degrees or went to the school of hard knocks and had life experience. Ultimately, whatever we have, wisdom or not, just comes from God. Our next blank, and let's turn our attention to to the dream here, and kind of the the point of part of the dream is that God controls all nations. God controls all nations. He controls their rise. He controls their fall. That's a lot of what this dream is that Nebuchadnezzar has. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream in 31. So this is what you saw, O king, and behold, a great image, or a big big statue. This image was mighty and exceeding brightness, and it stood before you, and its appearance was Frightening. It's not just a boring statue, it's bright and it's freaky looking. And it's impressive, and its head of this image was fine gold, and its chest, arms of silver, and the middle and thighs bronze, and its legs and feet were partially clay and iron. And look, but so, so he sees this big statue made of all these different metals, and it's impressive and it's scary and significant. But then what happens? A rock. But as you looked, a stone that was cut not by any human hand, it struck the image. It, it, it runs into it, onto its feet, and it breaks it into pieces. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all of them break into pieces, become like chaff, the summer threshing floors, and the wind carries them away that not a trace can be found. So this big, scary, terrifying thing gets hit by a rock and then just disappears. Disappears like dust and is scattered, and there's not a trace left. And it's not enough that just the rock ruins the image. Something else then happens to that rock, to that stone. The stone then becomes a great mountain. It grows and it grows and expands and expands until it fills and covers up the entire earth. Is what happens in his dream. And Daniel explains it, and he says that you, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. That's you. And all these other things, there are other kingdoms that are going to come after you. going to be the bronze one and another one and another one. And these are all the kingdoms that will come after you, Nebuchadnezzar. And that would be scary. I can't help but wonder if maybe Nebuchadnezzar figured out part of this dream. Because it tells us, you know, he had been sitting and thinking and wondering, what's coming after this? What's coming next? And this is the vision that came to his mind. And to think maybe, you know, the gold part, he had figured it out. Maybe the head looked like his own head, uh, but he couldn't piece together the rest. Because as kings, right, if you're, you're in charge, one of the things that kings worry about is, how do I hold on to my power? Who's coming for me? Who among my advisors is trying to stab me in the back? Who among my sons or my family is trying to kill me so they can take over? What are the other nations around me that are building up their armies or their empires so they can come and take me out? And how can I make sure none of that happens and I stay in charge forever? It's a never-ending quest to make sure that you're still on top. And right now, Nebuchadnezzar is on top of the world, is it even God and Daniel says several times, "God has given you all power and you really are the king of kings for now. But you're going to fall, and another kingdom's going to come after you. And you know what? It's going to be an inferior kingdom. It's going to be a worse kingdom than yours, but still yet yeah, you'll fade. And now after that, there's going to be another one and another one. And plenty to come. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom won't last forever. And in fact, none of these kingdoms do. They all come and they fade. One after another. But God God controls it. Nebuchadnezzar isn't in control of which nations get to rise and which nations get to fall. Ultimately, it's just up to God. But there is one kingdom that lasts. Verse 44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom... That shall never be destroyed. Nor shall that kingdom be left to another people. There is going to be a kingdom that lasts. It won't be conquered by nations. It won't be torn down or conquered. It will outlast every kingdom of the world. It will dominate all of them under its rule. You know, most empires claim to rule the world, right? You ever pull up a map and look and see, well, okay, what was Nebuchadnezzar's empire? What did it look like? You pull out a globe and then you see the parts of it that are colored in to be that. Okay, if you zoom all the way out and spin that globe all the way around, it's a pretty small area that's ruled by Nebuchadnezzar in comparison. Oh, what about the Greek empire? What about the Roman empire, right? The whole known world. We usually add that known part, um, which really we just mean, you know, the parts of the world that I know and care about. Those are the parts that I control. There's lots of other empires all over the world. Mongolian empires, the Aztec empires, the Native American empires, the First Nations here. There's all these empires after empires, and all of them may think that they control the world. None of those kingdoms did. None of those kingdoms do. But there is a kingdom coming in 44 that will actually cover the entire world. Every continent, every tiny island. Every blade of grass, every wave of water, every place that human beings can be, this kingdom will rule. And it will last forever, not a thousand years, not a really long time. It will last into eternity. What kingdom is this? What other kingdom could it be than the kingdom of God, than the kingdom of Jesus? That he founded at the cross. And then we look at forty-five. This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. This kingdom is coming; you can't stop it, Nebuchadnezzar. And all, in fact, all those kingdoms you're worried about, there's something even coming even later that you should be more concerned about. And you can bet your entire life on this fact. Nebuchadnezzar is worried about these kingdoms when he should be worried about the kingdom of God. And so often that's how we are as well. You know, we care about deeply about the rise and fall of nations, and some of that's good. Right, we should care when nations fall, because when governments fall apart, when there are coups and, and military overthrows, democracies, uh, people suffer. People made in the image of God that we're called to love and care for and preach the gospel to. We should care about our own nation, right? There's nothing necessarily sinful with caring about the place that we live and wanting it to succeed and not wanting it to fall apart because if it fell, if it was conquered, that would lead to suffering for us and for many people. But the reality is that every nation will rise and fall and God controls it all. And His control and their rise and their fall doesn't depend on ballot boxes, doesn't depend on who the president is, doesn't depend on Supreme Courts or Congress or your power or your might or the news or whatever it is you want to put it in. Nations rise and fall as the Lord wills to who He gives power to and to who He takes it away from. So, as believers, we don't have to fear. We don't have to worry what comes next. When all nation, because all nations will be crushed to dust and fade like a dream. And one day when Christ reigns on the throne. That's what we're to care about. And so our last, our, our last blank is really the most significant here. So we need to focus on the rock, not the statue. We need to focus on the rock in this dream, not the statue. There's a lot of people in general who read Scripture and miss the point. This is especially true when it comes to Prophecy especially true when it comes to apocalyptic writings and parts of God's Word, right? Because we see this statue, and there's four different kingdoms, and what do we all do? We immediately want to start figuring it out. might have noticed that I didn't tell you what I think any of those things are. Maybe that disappointed you. Hope we were going to pull out charts and look at that. Well, if you really care about that, come back Wednesday. We'll do that Wednesday. Okay, but that's not the main point of what this is. You know, the Babylonians are the gold, so the, me- you know, the Medes are the, are the silver, and then the Persian Empire is the bronze, and the Greek Empire is the iron. Oh, wait, no, that doesn't fit. So, hey, we'll put the, the Medes and the Persians together. We'll make them both be the silver. Then the Greeks can be the bronze, and the Romans can be the iron. Yeah, well, that one fits better. And we, we do this kind of stuff. And then We sit and we argue about it. Or those who will call them, you know, like I call them prophecy watchers, who are really confident about this kind of stuff, who, who really want to get into the weeds and tell you exactly who all these four kingdoms are. And it's not just that, they can go in and tell you who the ten toes represent and what they are. Not just the toes, but the toenails, because they've gotten really serious, figured out what everything here means. They get obsessed over these details, right? These are people you might get emails from them about blood moons or things, or this or that, I read it in the newspaper, and all this, you know, it's a barcode, it's the mark of the beast, because every five years there's a new mark of the beast that I have to be terrified about, because someone is getting too obsessed over these things. I often get these emails and they just go right in the trash. I don't even bother reading them. So if you send me something like that, I'm just telling you ahead of time I'm not going to read it and I don't really care. (laughs) Now why? Is that because I don't care about God? I don't care about eschatology? No, I do deeply. It's incredibly significant. It's incredibly important. The point of this dream is not who these nations are going to be. The point is that all of them will be crushed by Jesus' kingdom. The point is the rock. It is not this statue. 34, as you look, the stone, it's not cut out by any human hand. There's nothing human involved in it. It strikes this image on the feet of iron and clay. It breaks them into pieces. And the stone that strikes the image becomes a great mountain. And it fills the whole earth. This dream is about a rock that crushes every kingdom in his path. And it covers the earth. This dream, and Nebuchadnezzar, he's not worried about what these other kingdoms are, I think. I think he's terrified about, what is that rock? What is that rock that, that smashes everything and fills up the earth? That's probably what he's terrified over. Well, you don't know for sure, but that's what I would be if I saw that. It really doesn't matter what any of those kingdoms were or are. Because all of them are going to fade away like dust and disappear on the wind. Every single kingdom on earth is going to be broken by the rock. When the rock returns, every kingdom on earth will be abolished. Every nation will surrender and capitulate. Every flag thrown in a fire. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus alone is king. Our God is the rock. And the kingdom of God will never, never has been and it never will be defeated you don't have to worry about whatever blog or book or person who is fear-mongering about the next greatest threat to the church and the gospel as if the kingdom of God could ever be hindered or destroyed. No matter how much we all mess everything up and get things wrong. Because it's God controls the rise of all nations and all kingdoms and God's in charge of this kingdom and you and I cannot wreck it kingdom of God is God's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world the kingdoms of the world care about power and prestige they care about gold and armies but our king brought a different kind of kingdom our kingdom in the kingdom of God that Jesus came to proclaim this is part of the reason he was rejected they didn't like his kingdom They wanted a kingdom like the world. We want a king like the other nations have, God. We don't want a Messiah who comes to save us from our sins. We want a Messiah who comes and saves us from our enemies. Our external enemies. Defeat them. Don't save me. That's not what I want. But our king, he established it at the cross. Our king died as a joke to the world. They mocked him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and draped... Purple royalty garb over his body as they crucified him. And they put a sign over him and said, King of the Jews. You want a king? That's your king. What a joke. Ha! Who would want a king like that? Is what the world said. I do. A king that cares so much about his people that he left and stepped off his throne to give his life for them, to die in our place. A death that all of us deserve to die. Jesus came and our king died it for us. Our king did not come to serve. Our king came to serve. He tore off his clothes and he got on his hands and knees and he washed his disciples' stinky, gross feet and says, this is what I came to do to serve you. That's what our king did. Our king didn't come to save us. From the enemies of other nations, our King came to save us from the kingdom of sin and death. Because all of us were born in bondage to sin. Trapped and dead in our sins with no escape. But our King loved us and He came down to set us free. He lived a perfect life that none of us could ever live and He died as a sacrifice for us, for you and for me to establish his kingdom. And as a tomb he crushed death and defeated it. His death looked to the world like a great loss, and even his disciples were confused and thought that all hope was gone, but Jesus defeats death. He breaks its power, it has no hold over him. As the stone rolls away so that the rock can emerge with resurrected body. And he came back with the keys of heaven and earth. And he came back and proved that our sins are forgiven and death is undone. And because of the rock, salvation is available to any sinner who wants it, to any sinner who comes to ask for grace. Because of Jesus, all of our sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. Imagine knowing all of that about the rock and thinking the point of this story is about how cool that statue is. And about whether the Medes or the Persians or the silver. I wonder which one it is. That seems really important. And is not the most important part of this story. The important part is that the kingdom of God and the rock wins. And this kingdom expands and it never will be defeated. It started expanding at Pentecost. As the Holy Spirit fell down on that upper room. Of men and women gathered around just praying and seeking God's face waiting for him to show up because he promised that he would. And slowly but surely, that kingdom expanded and continues to expand all over the globe. As now we wonder in different places and times and think, wow, you know, there used to be lots more Christians here. As if that was something expected. As if the disciples walked out of that that upper room thinking, you know what, I bet that Christianity will take over the globe and one day there will be billions of Christians everywhere. There will be whole nations where most people are Christians and it's weird if people aren't. In fact, maybe it will be so popular, people just pretend to be Christians because everyone else is and they don't want to be looked down upon. Why did the kingdom expand like that? Did the kingdom of God expand because, you know, the disciples had access to really great technology? Expand because they had really influential people on the payroll and just got in at the right time? Did it happen because the disciples and the great leaders of the church were innovators and geniuses and had everything figured out? The kingdom of God was made up by fishermen and slaves and ordinary men and women. It expanded through the poor and the weak and the people in First Corinthians that were called foolish by the world. Most believers in the early church were mocked and people laughed and said, why would you want to be a Christian? Only idiots are Christians. Because look at who goes to church. It's just a bunch of nobodies. The kingdom of God expands not because of us, but because of Jesus. And the kingdom of God is here this morning, in this place, and all over the world. Not because Tanglewood Bible Fellowship is the kingdom of God. We're simply an an embassy of the kingdom. We're a little outpost pointing the way to the kingdom that is coming and is growing and expanding and filling. And when Jesus returns, every nation will be crushed and it will fill the whole world. We're all ambassadors and witnesses to that kingdom. We proclaim that Jesus has come and Jesus is coming again. And the kingdom's here. If you want to participate now instead of later when you're forced to bend the knee. God's kingdom is everywhere in small places the small people who just love our Savior and who get it it's in the proclamation of the gospel through my words and yours and ours and our actions every day our focus this morning like every morning should be on the rock and on Jesus not on the rise and fall of nations not distracted by details or other things that may or may not interest us. We have to be laser focused on the kingdom of God and on what truly matters. This morning we've talked about how God controls all wisdom, and God controls every nation, their rise and their fall. We've seen that our focus needs to be on the rock, not on the statue. So don't get distracted. Because Jesus came once, and He is coming again. And His coming will be terrifying for those who are not prepared, but it will be glorious and the most beautiful day for those of us who love the rock. Let's bow our heads in prayer, and I'll invite the worship team to come up and lead us in one more song. Lord, I ask that you would just fall on us, Lord. (laughs) Lord, would you help our focus to remain on you? Would our focus remain on Jesus? On the rock that becomes the mountain that fills the whole earth with your glory? Lord, would we be so distracted by the brightness and the wonder and the beauty of you and your kingdom that we don't care about anything else in the world? But the only way we can do that is if you help us. We ask that you would. Help us keep our focus on the rock. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our Savior in song. Hear this benediction from the end of Ephesians. Peace be to the brothers and sisters in love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love uncorruptible. God bless you. Go in peace.